Hey everybody! Welcome back to my channel. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you're new here, welcome. If you've been here before, I hope you already know how much I love and appreciate you guys. I love interacting with you, and I love that you're a part of this family that I've built around me. So just thank you again so much for all your love and support. My name is Dana Trupiana, and I cover infamous gangsters every week in a true crime light fashion. My show, Mob Times, comes out every Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. Well, it's Tuesday, it's 10 a.m., so here I am. Today, I'm going to be talking about one of the most notorious figures in all of Mafia history, especially in the early days of the American Mafia. He was an Italian bootlegger and one of the most powerful and feared Mafia bosses in New York City, Giuseppe Masseria, also known as Joe the Boss Masseria. Giuseppe Masseria was born on January 17, 1886 in Menfi, Agrigento province in Sicily, Italy. His father, Giuseppe Masseria, was a tailor, and his mother, Vita Marchicha, was a homemaker. Not only was his father a tailor, but he was born into a family of tailors. So I'm assuming that means that his mother had a hand in his father's business sometimes, and he probably had a few uncles and grandparents and all kinds of people in the family that were tailors as well. When he was a child, his family relocated to Marsala in the westernmost part of Sicily, and that is where he would grow up. He actually had a pretty tame childhood. Nothing really too crazy happened during his upbringing at all. His father was a tailor, so it's not like the family was extremely poor. He was bringing something home. And I don't really know if he was arrested a lot because Italy didn't exactly keep the best records back then, so I don't know if he was arrested all the time or if he was ever arrested even once, but from all accounts, Masseria had a pretty normal childhood. There's nothing that stood out. There's one other thing that I have absolutely no idea about, and that's that I have no idea if he had siblings. I see some sources out there say he's an only child, and I see other sources that say that he had like nine siblings, and I also see everything in between. I've seen that he has six, I've seen that he has five, so I really don't know. I'm leaning towards he was an only child, just because that's the thing that I've seen most often. I see on his genealogy reports, I see a bunch of people listed as his brothers and sisters. So I also saw it listed that he had nine siblings, but the people that are reporting that could just be reporting the names that they're seeing on the genealogy reports. I'm really not sure, so I don't want to give you information either way. I don't know, but I think he was an only child. So now it is 1902, Masseria is 16 years old, and he finds himself in a position where he is forced to move to the United States in order to avoid a murder allegation back in Italy. So this particular year, he had killed somebody, and the identity of who he killed or any even hint, nothing, does not exist. The only thing that exists is that he killed somebody and he had to flee Italy because of it. We don't know who, what, why, when, where, nothing. 
But he does it. He has to flee, and he arrives into the USA in 1902. Since there's no extradition treaty between the United States and Italy, and Masseria has some family back in the United States, obviously this is going to be his first choice as to where he's going to go when he's fleeing away from his country. It's kind of a no-brainer. It's pretty easy to escape crimes that you had committed in Italy just by traveling to the USA because there's no extradition treaty. You could have been the worst person in the world and committed the absolute most atrocious crimes and the USA is not going to hand you over back to Italy. Even though I've never seen it mentioned anywhere, it does seem like he had started working for the mafia back in Italy. It's pretty clear with how quickly he started working with the mafia once he got to the United States that he had been working with them back in Italy. You don't just get to the United States and randomly become a mafioso. That's not something that just happens. Most of the time you were wheeling and dealing back in Italy, and that's more than likely the case here. Especially since he committed the murder in Italy when he was 16 years old in the first place. Why would somebody not involved in criminal activity kill somebody when they're a literal child? So more than likely, Masseria has been at this game since he was a little kid. But again, I don't see that mentioned anywhere. That's just my own opinion. Almost as soon as he arrived in the United States, he quickly joined the Southern Manhattan, Little Italy, and Harlem-based Morello crime family. And remember that there's two Little Italys in New York at this time. There's the one downtown at the very downtown, like where you would see Little Italy now. And then there's a Little Italy up in Harlem, which is a lot more densely packed. There's a lot more immigrants of Italy living up there. However, I do know that the diaspora was somewhere around 1920. That's when my ancestors came from Italy. So I would assume that it's probably not that packed yet. It is going to get packed. But that's where, that's the two concentrations that you'll see heavy, 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 heavy Italian immigration numbers is going to be up in Harlem, where the one little Italy is, and then the little Italy that still exists today down in downtown Manhattan. And that's where you see like Mulberry Street and all that. So the Morello gang, they are based in both little Italy's, the one up in Harlem and the one downtown. At the time, Masseria was working under the 107th Street gang, which was a gang under the Morello crime family umbrella. Because listen, when you're looking at the mafia, even before the commission was created, there's a hierarchy. There's levels to this shit. You have a boss, then there's like the top guys, you got like the consigliere, the underboss, you know, the, the big dogs, and then you've got your capos. And each one of those capos has their own gang. And each one of those gangs operate under the crime family umbrella. So at this time, it's the Morello crime family. So all of these gangs are operating under the Morello crime family umbrella. But the 107th Street gang, that's like on the street level what gang he belonged to. Masseria married a woman named Maria Guarino. And together, they had six children. They had four boys and two girls. His oldest son, Joseph Jr., was born in 1908. James Masseria was born August 23rd, 1910, and he had Bernardo, or Bernard, I don't know, it depends on where you look. He was probably named Bernardo at birth, but when he would introduce himself in the United States, he probably said his name was Bernard. And he was born in 1917. Rudolph was born in 1927, so that's the youngest of the boys. 
They had one daughter named Vitinha, who was born in 1911, and they do have a second daughter, but she's marked as private absolutely everywhere, so I know nothing about her. I don't know when she was born. I don't even know what her name was. Nothing about this girl is made public, and I'm guessing that's because, obviously, Masseria is a very, very famous mafia boss, and some of his boys, you know, they probably went into the life after him. And Vitinha, she does something a little famous down the road, so that's why we know that she's associated, but it's very possible that he just tried to protect her because he knew he had a very criminal and a very infamous name and was trying to protect her from everybody knowing that she was related to him. So you cannot find this little girl's name, date of birth, nothing. By 1909, Masseria was caught in a burglary operation, and he was found guilty of burglary when he was charged at this point. And when he was charged with this, he was given a suspended sentence. He literally only got probation, and he got a short probation. He got like six months probation. I don't even know how much time he was given in jail, because he was given a jail sentence. He was probably given like two to three years in prison but it was suspended and he was put on probation. So it was kind of like, listen, don't get in trouble again. And if you don't get in trouble, you know, we'll forget that you got arrested in the first place, whatever. But it really doesn't even matter how long he was sentenced to because he never served it. So who cares? <laughs> on May 23rd, 1913, he was sentenced to four to six years in prison for a third degree burglary charge that he had been charged with separately. So this has nothing to do with the arrest in 1909. They got him on a separate burglary charge, and now he's given four to six years in prison, and he's going to actually have to serve that. I also think it's pretty obvious that he didn't learn his lesson from the first charge, because this is four years later, and he's still doing the same stuff. Now, I know that he goes on to, you know, be in the mafia and everything, so obviously he's going to do illegal things, but I feel like getting the same charge four years apart, like, it's pretty obvious the lesson that they were trying to teach, it didn't stick. He didn't clean his life up, and, you know, whatever. How could you clean your life up? How could you learn a lesson when you got a slap on the wrist? You walked out that day a free man. In the early 1910s, the Morello family fell into absolute chaos after the boss of bosses, Giuseppe Morello, was imprisoned. He had been arrested alongside his second-in-command, Ignazio Lupo, on counterfeiting charges. And this was no quick sentence, either. Both leaders of the family, both Morello and Lupo, were given 30-year sentences. So they weren't getting out of prison to lead the mafia anytime soon. So this causes absolute just... Everybody is losing their mind over the two major leaders of the Italian Mafia in New York right now, both of them being taken off the street. Their arrest made the family separate, and that led to Gaetano Reina and Salvatore D'Aquila to leave the Morello family and form their own crime families. Each of them formed their own gang and got their own territory, and now the umbrella that I had been talking about, the Morello umbrella, so now they are no longer under the Morello umbrella. They're going out and starting their own umbrella. Salvatore D'Aquila went and started a gang that would one day come to be known as the Gambino crime family. D'Aquila's family ends up in charge of activities from East Harlem to the Bronx, 
and later would become pretty big rivals of the Morello family. Gaetano Reyna splits off, and he starts his own gang, which would one day come to be known as the Lucchese family. Joe Masseria did not leave the Morello gang, and he stayed in the Morello family after the other two guys split off. He stayed with the Morellos, and the remaining family that he stayed with would one day come to be known as the Genovese family. It is really interesting to me to look at this point in history because as much as the Castellamarisi War and as much as the Commission and all of those things, as much as that would shape the face of the modern American Mafia, this moment in time where Morello and Ignazio Lupo are put in jail and everybody is left to fend for themselves, this moment shapes the American Mafia just as much. Nicola Shiro had his own gang, and that would one day come to be known as the Bonanno family. Shiro never had anything to do with the Morello family, and the Colombo family is formed with Joe Perfacci. So the Colombo family really is the only family that is the younger one. All of the other ones are formed with these big boys being represented even before the split happened. So you've got all four of those families that have a rich, rich history. I guarantee you the Colombo family has some history that leads back to this. When you look it up, when you look up the Colombo family, you see that like Joe Perfacci started it and it came, you know, when Luciano didn't want one guy, so he made Joe Perfacci, blah, 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 whatever. I bet you that the gang that became the Colombo family, I bet you it was started at some point in here because when you look up the Bonanno family, you don't see that Nicola Shiro formed that. You know, you only find that out when you're researching Nicola Shiro separately. So I bet you that does exist somewhere. I just don't know it. If you know it, drop it in the comments. Let me know what the history of the Colombo family is because as far as I've seen, it came from Joe Perfacci. So now we've got three gangs that came off of the Morello umbrella. You've got Salvatore D'Aquila, you've got Gaetano Reina, and then you've got the Morello family that's still standing, and that's the one that Masseria is in. Out of all these guys, and then you've got Nicola Shiro running his own separate gang, out of all these guys, Salvatore D'Aquila ends up receiving the appointment as the new Capo di Tutti Capi, or boss of bosses. By the early 1920s, the struggle for power had begun already between Masseria, who was known to be very aggressive and fearless, and D'Aquila, with the two of them striving to gain control of the entire Italian-American mafia. Even though Masseria and D'Aquila each had their own gangs and they were the bosses of their respective gangs, that wasn't good enough. Each one of them wanted to hold the title of Capu di Tutti Capi, and this is all before the commission is created, so the American-Italian Mafia is just the American-Italian Mafia. There's no families at this point. There's just gangs, and there's, if you're Italian, you belong to this. There's the Black Hand, there's a whole bunch of different gangs out there that are Italian, but the Capu di Tutti Capi they lead the entire American-Italian mafia. So they each really want this title, and they're going to fight for it. Now, obviously, during this time, they're each wanting to gain a lot more power, so what are they going to do? They're going to strengthen their team. They're going to equip mercenaries. They're going to get soldiers. They're 
gonna do everything they can to make their position stronger, so it'll be easier for them to take over control of the mafia. Masseria was lucky enough to find Lucky Luciano, and he recruited him to be one of his enforcers or gunmen, soldiers, whatever you want to call them. And he found a bunch of guys with Lucky. You know, you got Vito Genovese, you got Joe Adonis, all those guys. They're all under Masseria. D'Aquila was also lucky, and he also found some pretty strong soldiers for himself. He recruited Umberto Valenti, and Umberto Valenti would come to kind of become the face of the D'Aquila gang. The power struggle had begun, but honestly, at the beginning, it was just like beefing. They just didn't like each other. There was no shots fired. There was no actual attacks. They're just each arming themselves. They are choosing a defensive stance, they're building up their rations, they're they're making themselves as strong as possible so that when it does come time to become offensive and go after that title, they're gonna be better off for it. And now Diacola doesn't really have to fight for that title. He is the Kapu di Tutti Kapi. He doesn't have to fight for it, but he knows that other people are gonna come for it. He knows Masaria is not gonna just sit down and let him be his boss? Absolutely not. He's not stupid. So he's getting ready. And the first strike is gonna come from the current Kapu de Tutti copy. So the way that that comes about is that D'Aquila starts to feel like Valenti is gaining too much power. He doesn't like it. He doesn't like the fact that everybody thinks of Valenti as the boss, not him. So he puts out a contract on Valenti. Now Valenti goes to D'Aquila and he's like, bro, bro, How could you? Like, I love you, man. I am not trying to take your spot. I am not trying to take your power. Like, please don't put a contract on my head. Please let me prove my loyalty. I want to work for you. I don't want your job. I I love you. Like, please don't have me killed. (laughs) So D'Aquila is like, fine. Fine. I won't have you killed. Ugh. Fine. But... If you want to stay alive, you have to go take out Masseria and Terranova. Masseria and Vincent Terranova are the ones that are leading the Morello family and are the only ones that could theoretically step into the spot of Kapu D2 T Kapi. So they're his number one challenge. They're his number one rival. They're his number one threat. So he wants them taken out. And he tells Valenti, like, I want that entire family gone. So if you want to stay alive, you unalive them. On May 7th, 1922, Vincenzo Terranova, the underboss of the Morello Terranova crime family, was murdered in a drive-by shooting near East 116th Street, and it was like right outside his home. Valenti is obviously the prime suspect for the killing of the Morello underboss. Everybody knows about this beef. Everybody knows that D'Aquila is considering that family a threat. So nobody is scratching their heads wondering what happened. The day after Terranova's death, so on May 8th, Valenti's underboss Silva Tagliagamba was fatally wounded by Masseria and other gunmen that were working for Masseria in Lower Manhattan. Valenti is a capo. He has his own gang. So Valenti is the boss of his gang. A capo in D'Aquila's family, but the boss of his gang. The underboss in his gang is Tagliagamba. So Masseria knows that 
Valenti and Tagliagamba are going to be coming around this way and sets up a trap for him at the liquor exchange in Lower Manhattan. While Tagliagamba and Valenti did leave the scene alive, Tagliagamba would catch a few bullets and he would be in the hospital until he succumbed to these injuries all the way in June. So he's in a coma in the hospital for around a month before dying. Masseria was arrested at the scene, but the case never made its way to trial. I'm guessing that's because everybody knew who Masseria was. And if there were any witnesses at first that said that they saw Masseria shoot Tagliagamba, they probably were like, oh yeah, I saw the guy wearing black shoot the guy wearing blue. But as soon as they figured out who he was, no, they didn't. No, they did not see that. No, they did not see anything. It's the craziest thing. I thought that I saw that, but I didn't. And that's just what they experienced over and over and over again. Every single one of the witnesses were like, oh, that was Masseria. Yeah, no, I, I didn't see anything. That's, that's, mm-mm. I wasn't there. I wasn't even there. You know what? I'm not even sure if like I'm a whole human right now, okay? Do I even exist? Did that happen in the first place? Are you making it up? Like, they were not talking. When they arrested Masseria, they knew it was a long shot. They were probably not going to get him for murder because they knew. They knew that all of these witnesses were going to recant their statements. They knew that they were never going to be able to build a case against him. But one thing that they did think that they had was they thought they got him on an illegal weapons charge. They caught him with a weapon in his hand. The cops were absolutely blown away to find out that Masseria actually had a legit gun permit. So they couldn't legally charge him with anything that day. They arrested him for the murder. They charged him with the murder. But when they didn't have enough evidence, it never even made its way to trial. And, you know, he walked away. This one situation is widely misreported for one simple reason. Wikipedia has it wrong. If you read the Wikipedia for Joe Masseria, you'll read that this situation played out as Tagliagamba being Terranova's underboss. And on May 7th, Vincenzo Terranova was killed in a drive-by, and Valenti had Tagliagamba, Terranova's underboss, killed the next day. Now, this is just not true, and it's not what happened. (laughs) If you listen to a lot, I'm not sure if it's all of them, but I know it's a lot of them. If you listen to a lot of the podcasters that are YouTubers that go through the Masseria story or include this situation in any way, shape, or form, you're going to hear the wrong story. You're going to hear it that Tagliagamba was Terranova's underboss and he was killed by Valenti. And the only reason you're going to hear it that way is because the only thing those YouTubers do is go to Masseria's Wikipedia page and they report what they see there. So it's not their fault that Wikipedia has it wrong. Wikipedia has it where Tagliagamba is actually Terranova's underboss. But that's not the case. So when you see all these YouTubers that are just completely getting it wrong, you're like, what the hell? Why do they all have it wrong? That's why. It's because it's misreported on Wikipedia. I think after this episode, I'm going to go ahead and put an edit on the Wikipedia page because, like, this is messed up. People are so widely misreporting this issue that, like, nobody has any idea that this is wrong. 
So if you read Masaria's Wikipedia page at this point and you see the truth of what happened, know that more than likely it's because I came in and changed it. So let's recap what actually happened. Silva Tagliagamba was Umberto Valenti's underboss. Umberto Valenti works for Salvatore Di Aquila, who is currently Capo di Tutti Capi in New York, and he's currently in a power struggle with Joe Masseria, who wants that title for himself. Tagliagamba was killed in revenge for Valenti killing the underboss of Masseria's. So Terranova was Masseria's underboss. Tagliagamba was Valenti's underboss. So when Valenti killed Terranova, Masseria turned around and killed Tagliagamba. Masseria is still working for the Morello family and is now the boss of that family. And the current underboss of the Morello family is Vincenzo Terranova. Terranova was killed by Valenti. So Masseria turned around and killed Tagliagamba, Valenti's underboss, to avenge Terranova's death. Valenti was carrying out the order of D'Aquila. So the following day, on May 8, 1922, after the killing of former Valenti underboss Tagliagamba, there's a heavy attack launched against the Morello family, and in particular against Joe Masseria, the boss of the Morello family. During this attack, Masseria was cornered on Grand Street within a block of the police precinct. If you hear about this anywhere else, you'll hear that Valenti just continued the attack. According to other sources, all three of these events are Valenti attacking Masseria, but that's not the truth. This is a revenge attack after Masseria had Tagliagamba killed. So if you look at the way that it's reported on Wikipedia, this is Valenti killing Terranova, Valenti killing Tagliagamba, and Valenti attacking Masseria. But what it really is, is Valenti killed Terranova, Masseria killed Tagliagamba, and then Valenti came back after Joe Masseria the next day on May 8, 1922 on Grand Street. Masseria did escape this attack, but four men and two women were shot in this attack. None of them died, but six people were shot. Like, that's no small number. So now we're going to fast forward three months. On August 9, 1922, Masseria left his apartment at 82nd Avenue, and he was attacked again when two armed men charged at him and started shooting. Like, he stepped foot out of his apartment, and all of a sudden, just shots fired, and he's being attacked. The gunmen are now pursuing Masseria, and Masseria ducks into Heine's millinery store, at 82nd 2nd Avenue. So he lives at 82nd Avenue. He ducks into Heine's Millinery Store at 82 2nd Avenue. So literally, he takes one step out his door, he's getting attacked, and he jumps into Heine's Millinery Store right next door. These guys that are attacking him open fire inside the store, and there's other guys that are outside that shoot through the front window trying to get to him. And now, this entire city block is in chaos because it's broad daylight. There's people out doing their shopping. Like, there's people everywhere. This doesn't ever happen. A broad daylight shooting? Very rare. Very, very, very rare. So, people don't even know what to do with themselves. Like, the most that these people have any idea about any of this is, like, they read it in the paper. Oh my god, somebody was shot. 
They don't know about, like, guns and stuff. These are regular, everyday people. They don't get mixed up in stuff like this. Now, these shooters are exhaustively shooting at Masseria, but they realize soon enough that they're not gonna get him. This is where Masseria is gonna start to get a reputation as someone who can straight up dodge bullets. He's attacked on so many different occasions, and nobody can ever catch him. This is escape number two. Like, okay, escaping one attack? Okay, everyone's done that. Getting shot at and living to tell the tale is light work once, but twice? This man must be made of steel. Or he can just, like, he's ultra fast, you know, that, that flesh, the flesh, he's the flesh. But really, like, they are blown away that this man has been attacked not once, but twice shot at by multiple individuals, and managed to keep his life. The gunmen are now, at this point, once they realize that they're not going to get him, they start to think of an escape route because they don't want to get caught by the cops. Like, they just attacked somebody with guns on a public street. They gotta get the fuck out of there. The gunmen fled across 2nd Avenue to get in a getaway car that was parked on East 5th Street, just around the corner. The car was a Hudson. I, I can't find any specifics about what type of Hudson. It's mentioned that it's a Hudson Cruiser, but there's no such thing as a Hudson Cruiser. The Cruiser is just like a style, but there was a Super 6 Hudson, a Hudson Phaeton, there was a Hudson Hornet. So think of the Cruiser the same way as like a coupe or, you know, a two-door sedan or a four-door sedan. That's what a Cruiser is. So it doesn't say what kind of Hudson, but at the time, all cars look alike. Honestly, it really doesn't matter what kind of Hudson. It probably looks like this. So the getaway car hears all of this commotion and they start to freak out. So the getaway car is like, yo, fuck this, I'm out. So they start driving down East 5th Street towards Bowery because they're like, I've been waiting way too long. These gunmen clearly aren't coming back. And if I sit here, I'm going to jail. So they start driving away. Now the fleeing gunmen, they're chasing this car down because they're like, oh, hell no, you are not leaving us here to get caught. So they jump onto the running boards of the car. Modern cars don't have running boards, but this car is super high up. So it had to have like a little lift to help you get in. It's like a little lift that you can step on. Picture when you're trying to get up into like an 18 wheeler. It has the little lift that you can step on so that you're not like trying to get five feet up in the air. So the little lift that you can step on to get into like an 18 wheeler, that's a running board. So these guys jump onto the running board as this car is running away from them. But as they're pursuing this car, trying to get to their getaway car, they are faced with an issue. A lot of people were on the street just chilling, living their average daily life, going to work, having lunch. No one's expecting something like this to happen. Again, it's super rare for something like this to happen in broad daylight. Nearby, there was a ladies' garment industry union meeting, and it had just ended. So you've got dozens and dozens of men that were at this meeting spilling out onto the streets. And all of a sudden, they hear gunshots. And they, instead of running away, they attempted to stop this speeding car. So you've got these guys that are trying to get out of the situation. They're on running boards of the car. 
barely making it to this car. Now this car is trying to get off the scene, but you've got a bunch of guys that just filed out from this nearby meeting, and they step in front of the car, and they don't let it pass. Because they're like, whoa, 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 we heard shooting, you need to stay here. Like, we're gonna make sure, if you're supposed to get arrested, you're getting arrested, buddy. You're not running. Good Samaritans, you know? That's just what it is. But these armed men that clearly have very large guns in their hand have absolutely no plans of getting caught and going to jail today. That's not gonna happen. They drove the car straight through the crowd, and when that didn't really work well enough, they start shooting randomly into this crowd, which ends up injuring six people and killing two, as well as a horse that's in the area. How freaking sad is that? This poor horse is just going on about his day, like doing his job, taking his master to work or to the market, and he catches a freaking bullet. Like, yeah, I know, I know. I care way more about animals than I do people. I really do. And people talk a lot of shit about that. But I just feel like animals are so innocent. Like, listen, okay, honestly, I've thought a lot about this. I've done a lot of thinking about this. And I'm pretty convinced that the purpose of human beings is to protect animals. Not that we've done a great job with it. We eat them we treat them horribly. We're really not good to these animals. But when I cuddle with my dog, I can't help but to think that humans do not deserve animals. They just don't. And if the purpose of my life is to provide a better life for as many animals as possible and protect them and help them and shelter them and do everything I can to make sure that these animals that have a shorter lifespan than I do live a better life? Honestly, I'd be just fine with that. Anyways, Masaria was later found by the police in his upstairs bedroom because they hear shooting, they know all of this is going down, so what's the first thing you're going to think of? Obviously, you're going to think Masaria, who lives next door to where the shooting happens. So they go up to Masaria's apartment, and they find him sitting on his bed, still shell-shocked by the incident. Shell-shocked is what they called PTSD back then. So, pretty much, he's still in shock. He was wearing a straw hat when he left his apartment that day, and he was still sitting on his bed with the straw hat on, and the straw hat had two bullet holes in it. So, after Masaria walked away from this, and he's starting to become known as the man that can dodge bullets, his name is starting to pick up some steam in New York, and in New York's underworld. D'Aquila's reputation starts to decrease. Think of it like this. People would be doing the whole, like, oh, who would win in a fight, Superman or Batman kind of thing. And they're like, oh, Masaria would totally beat D'Aquila. He would just dodge him like he dodges bullets, like he's the Flash. He would just dodge and dodge until D'Aquila tired himself out. Like, that's really the kind of stuff that citizens are saying, because everybody knows what's going on in the underworld. You don't have to be a gangster to know what's going on with gangsters. And Masseria just starts to build up a lot more respect. Meanwhile, Giuseppe the Clutch Hand Morello was released from the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary in 1920 and was also attempting to reclaim control of the empire that he had left behind. He wasn't expecting him to get out and D'Aquila to immediately put a price on his head. Giuseppe Morello is the guy that formed the gang in the first place. 
he's where the whole power struggle came from. He was the one that formed the original gang that everybody branched off from. He was put in prison in 1910 and given a 30-year sentence, but he was released after only 10 years. And he doesn't expect a price to be put on his head as soon as he gets out. When he finds out there's a contract on his head, he flees and goes back to Sicily. Morello is the dude with the weird hand, which he proudly shows off in every single picture of him. For some reason, you don't really see pictures of him without his weird little deformed hand. Morello was like the originator of love yourself the way you are, and good for him for embracing his deformities, but it's just weird. Usually gangsters don't advertise their deformities and their weaknesses, but Morello, he's all about that. He's like, oh, look at my cool hand. Look, guys, it's cute. Remember, Masseria was the only one who didn't leave and start a separate faction. Reina formed a family, Tiaquila formed a family, but Masseria stayed put, and he served as the boss of the Morello family while Morello was in prison. So Morello being released isn't a bad thing for Masseria. He had served dutifully in his absence, and Morello had nothing but love for Masseria. Masseria scheduled a meeting with Giuseppe Morello and Umberto Valente, implying that he was willing to give up on his desire to be Capu di Tutti Capi, hand the reins back over to Morello, and let Morello lead the entire mafia again. On the outside, it seemed like this was a huge weight off of Masseria's shoulders. He was tired of being attacked, tired of being at war, and now that his fearless leader had finally come out of prison, he could step down and relinquish the title of boss, especially since this title hadn't done anything but bad for him all along. But what Valente didn't know was that this was a trap. Masseria and Morello had already planned to not even show up, and originally, this was set up to be an execution of Valenti. A meeting spot was set up for that Friday at noon at a cafe named John's of 12th Street at 233 East 12th Street in New York. Interestingly enough, John's of 12th Street is, like, super famous now. It was used on the set of Boardwalk Empire, and it was also used on the set of Sopranos. It was a very well-known meetup spot for a lot of mafia figures. Valenti and his three bodyguards arrived at the restaurant, where they see that Masseria's three men are there, but Masseria himself isn't there. Valenti, his three bodyguards, and Morello, who did end up showing up, and two of his men sat down and had lunch together and ended on a good note. They left the restaurant laughing and joking around. As they walked eastward, Valenti got a bad feeling. It's not really clear what spooked him. Maybe something was said. Maybe he was just getting a feel for the vibe. I don't really know, but something spooked that man. Valenti suddenly gets spooked, and he takes off running for 2nd Avenue. Luciano and Vito Genovese, the two bodyguards that Morello had brought along with him, pulled out revolvers and started shooting at Valenti. Valenti whirled around and grabbed his revolver, pulling it out and getting ready to shoot as he caught a bullet to the chest. When he caught the bullet, he was kind of like, screw this, I'm not even going to bother to shoot back. 
I'm just going to continue running. So he, I don't know if he dropped the gun or if he put it away. I'm assuming he probably dropped the gun. So he drops the gun and he runs for the street where he made it to a taxi that was passing by. Valenti jumped onto the running boards of the taxi that was passing by. We already went over what running boards were. So apparently it was like a popular thing to jump onto the running boards of a car. So Valenti jumps onto the running boards of the taxi. But it was one of those theatrical moments. By the time he made it to the taxi, he looked down and realizes that he had caught a bullet and has a huge hole in his chest. He fell off the taxi and died on the spot. So now the deed was done. Luciano had checked off this task on his little to-do list, but the problem was it's noon and this is a busy street corner. There's a crowd forming after this loud-ass gunfight had just taken place. The problem with the crowd is that it's blocking off Luciano's escape route. Luciano handles the situation the same way that the men who were fleeing from Masseria handled their situation. He starts opening fire into the crowd. In firing into the crowd, he caught a street sweeper and he caught an eight-year-old little girl who had been visiting New York from New Haven, Connecticut. Obviously, his plan worked, and the crowd dispersed. They all went screaming and ducking and hiding from the bullets, and Luciano was able to escape by ducking into a nearby tenement building. When the newspapers reported on Valenti's death, they said that he was alleged to have arranged the shooting of more men than any other man in the city. He was described as a black-hand extortionist, a 34-year-old enforcer of Salvatore Toto di Aquila, who was the Capu di Tutti Capi. Masseria was arrested for Valenti's murder. Obviously. Somebody had to be. This took place in broad daylight, and two civilians had been injured. The cops literally could not do nothing. They had to do something. When he was arrested, he grinned at the police and asked if he should bring a pair of pajamas with him. After the killing of Valenti, Masseria's power grew exponentially. He became the head of the Morello family, while the family's first boss, Giuseppe Morello, became the consigliere. I wonder how that came to pass. Like, Morello had run that family in the past. It was freaking named after him. But then again, he went to prison, and Masseria's power grew. After this point, Masseria came to be known as Joe the Boss Masseria. D'Aquila, in acting as the Capo di Tutti Capi, he's getting really close to a lot of really powerful people. He had gotten really close to Joseph Leonardo, the boss of Cleveland, Nicola Shiro, and he had also become pretty close with Frankie Yale. He had Umberto Valenti, Alfred Minio, Giuseppe Trena, and Frank Scalise as his top guys below him, and they were all powerhouses. His little circle is looking pretty goddamn strong right now. That was until Valenti died. One of D'Aquila's top guys... Savaro Sam Palaccia left D'Aquila and went over to Masseria. Over there, he became a personal advisor and rose to a higher position than he had ever been in the D'Aquila family. He lost even more power when one of his best friends, Joseph Leonardo, was assassinated on October 13, 1927. And then even more when another friend of his, Frankie Yale, died in July of 1928. You know what? When I did my Capone episode, I said over and over again that it didn't make sense to me why Masseria threw his support behind Capone. Capone was fighting Aiello for power, and it would make more sense if Masseria backed Aiello 
who was also from Sicily. These men fully operate on you are as good as the place that you were born. That's all that matters about you. I never really thought about it, but I bet you that this right here has a lot to do with why he backed Capone. Losing Frankie Yale was a pretty big blow to D'Aquila's power, and Capone is the one that killed Frankie Yale, regardless of the fact that Yale had been one of Capone's top mentors. Maybe Masseria and Capone had an agreement that if he killed Yale for him to lessen D'Aquila's power, Masseria would back Capone over Aiello. I, I love that. I love filling in history in my head because these things I say, like, I don't know why this happened. But when I fill those holes and find the answers for them without, like, reading them in an article, it fulfills my inner purpose as a researcher. On October 10th, 1928, D'Aquila, the boss of bosses, left his apartment on his way to a doctor's appointment. There was nothing different about that day than any other day. D'Aquila regularly walked the streets. He went to the market. Regardless of the power struggle that he's in, he is constantly on these streets. However, on this day in particular, there was a bunch of dudes that were hanging out on the side of the street on Avenue A. Before he could even, like, look at them strangely, one of the dudes pulls out a pistol and shot him. When he fell to the ground, the dude put even more bullets in him for good measure. It's pretty widely believed that his underboss, Alfred Minio, had arranged his hit when he was approached by Masseria and Morello and told that either he kills D'Aquila himself or they would kill D'Aquila and him. After the death of D'Aquila, Manfredi Minio and his enforcer Steve Ferrigno took over D'Aquila's family and they secretly became allies with Masseria. After D'Aquila was killed, Masseria gained the position of Capu di Tutti Capi and started to move once again to consolidate the entirety of New York's mafia. He started putting pressure on all of the other gangs that had formed to pay tribute to him. His power and influence had grown to the point that even Gaetano, Tom Reyna, and Ice Racketeer, who were not even part of Masseria's empire, who had once been a part of the Morello family and broken off so that they could do their own thing, started to pay Masseria for the privilege of operating a criminal empire in New York State. In other words, practically every Italian Mafia member in New York now paid monetary tribute to Masseria. Immediately after he killed D'Aquila, Masseria started to put pressure on the Sicilian Mafia family, which were also known as the Castella Morese, to pay him a monetary tribute. In other words, he's trying to get everybody to pay him a tribute, and that way it can go back to the point where there's the Morello gang and all the other gangs that exist are under the Morello umbrella. He wants, once again, for all of New York to be one big Morello Masseria gang, and then each of their own gangs to just be like capos. So, originally, the D'Aquila family isn't paying Masseria any tribute. Like, they had gone off on their own on purpose. They didn't want to pay Masseria or the Morello family absolutely anything. That's why they went off on their own. On top of that, D'Aquila is the Capu di Tutti Capi. If anything, they should be paying him. 
But once Di Aquila died, it was a lot easier for Masseria to put pressure on that family, especially since they had become a lot more friendly with Manfredi Minio leading the family, and they started paying a monetary tribute as well. Masseria charged the leader of the Sicilian Mafia family, Niccolo Cola Shiro, a fee of $10,000. And as if that wasn't enough, he also summoned him to resign his position as leader of the Casella faction, because he broke the law by not paying tribute to him up until that point, even though it hadn't been required before this. It didn't really make sense why he was coming so hard for him. Shiro wasn't an enemy of his. Like, okay, $10,000 in back taxes, cool, whatever, get it. But why would he also require him to step down? It didn't really make much sense. Either way, Kolashiro followed absolutely everything that Masaria said. He was trying to keep the peace, and he was trying to keep his family neutral in this war that is very clearly about to start. Just as he had done when Diaquila and Masaria had been at war, which was how he was able to stay alive and keep his family separate from everything going on with Masseria, with Diaquila, with Reina. He was able to keep his family separate by remaining neutral. He paid the $10,000 fine, and he also resigned his post as the boss of the Castella Marese family. When Shiro gave up his title as boss, he vanished. He headed back to Italy, where he would retire and die an old man in his bed of natural causes on April 29th, 1957, at 84 years old, far outside of this war that's going on in New York. He never returned. He was like, screw this shit, I am going to go back to my home country and I'm gonna live a nice and peaceful life away from that shit. Once Shiro left, Vito Bonventre took control of the Castellamarisi family. He was a powerful mafia leader, a true mustache Pete. Bonventre was the leader of the Good Killers. I talked about the Good Killers in the Malazzo episode, as Malazzo was a member of the gang. When they had all gotten caught up in the murder of Carmelo Cayozzo, they all split up and went their separate ways. He was known as the King because of his wealth from bootlegging. Before getting into bootlegging, Bonventre had owned a bakery. He was Joseph Bonanno's cousin, and all of his brothers in upstate New York were in the Mafia, so it doesn't take much to figure out how he went from bakery owner to being in the life. On July 15th, 1930, Bonventre was driving his car into his garage behind his house at 69 Orient Avenue. Two men ran up on his car and shot him twice in the chest before fleeing to a car that was waiting nearby. When Bonventre died, Masseria attempted to install Joe Perino, a candidate that he had put forward as the new boss of the Castello Marisi family. And now it makes sense why he went so hard for Shiro. He had somebody that he wanted to put in that spot. And the person that he wanted to put in that spot was obviously going to be an ally to him rather than somebody that would just remain neutral and do whatever it took to keep the peace between all of them as Shiro had done. Initially, I thought Perino was the guy that was with Gaspar Malazzo when Malazzo was killed, but I was wrong. That was Sam Perino that was with Malazzo, and this is Joe Perino. They're brothers, not the same person. Malazzo has a super interesting story, so like, if you finish this episode and you're looking for something else to watch, go watch the Malazzo episode, because that one is a freaking doozy. I'll link it below. 
I like Malazzo a lot, honestly. And I think he was a really good dude. And he's my birthday twin, so I have a connection with him. Giuseppe Perino was Sam Perino's brother. So even though Masseria had killed his brother because Masseria, we'll get into that in a little bit. But even after that, Giuseppe still remained a loyal soldier to Masseria. When he was put in charge of the Shiro family, the soldiers in the family were not happy about it. On January 19th, 1931, Perino went to Bel Tiza restaurant at 100 West 40th Street in New York with a few of his friends. Just wanted to have a nice night out. While he was out at the restaurant, one man came into the restaurant and shot him one time in the head. Perino's dinner guests dove under the table and they watched as the shooter dropped the gun on the ground and walked out of the restaurant. Nobody pursued him and nobody was ever charged for the crime. But you can definitely assume that it was someone within his own family that had planned and executed this hit because they did not want him to be the leader. Once Perino was out of the way, Salvatore Maranzano took over as the head of the Casella Marisi crime family. Masseria was not pleased with this and he issued a contract on Maranzano's head. This was not surprising. The Castilla Marisi War, it had technically already started because Malazzo had already been killed by this point. A lot of people theorized that Malazzo being killed is what started the Castilla Marisi War. So if we're looking at it from that angle, the Castilla Marisi War is already going on. And the Castilla Marisi War is between Joe Masseria and Maranzano. It would be stupid if he didn't have a contract on Maranzano's head, honestly. The Castellamarisi War started in February of 1930 when members of the Masseria and Maranzano family engaged in a fierce power struggle for control of the Italian-American Mafia. So they wanted the entire Mafia to be one family and they wanted to be Capu di Tutti Capi of that family. Honestly, a lot goes into the Castello Marisi War. A lot of people lost their lives in the Castello Marisi War. I'm not really going to go too far into that because I've done it a hundred times by now. If you're interested in what went down in the Castello Marisi War and who died in the war, I'll link below Lucky Luciano's episode. Go check that out. I fully go into detail on the whole war, on who died in the war, what led up to it, what happened after it. I don't want to really go through it again for the 8,000th time, so that's a reference for that. One thing I will go through, though, is Masseria's relationship with Al Capone and Joe Aiello. Masseria, Al Capone, and Joe Aiello were the three most powerful and influential figures in all of organized crime in that entire era. Despite their different personalities and leadership styles, these three men played a huge and very significant role in shaping the criminal empire and the entire criminal underworld of the United States during this time. Joe Aiello was a major player in the criminal underworld of Chicago during the Prohibition era. I go over a lot of information about Joe Aiello in the Capone episode, so I'll link the Capone episode below if you want to know more information about Joe Aiello, about Capone himself. I just did an episode, I'm pretty sure it was my last episode that I did on Capone. So go check out that episode, you can see a lot more information there. Despite his criminal activities, Aiello was respected by most of the Italian-American community. Not just the criminals, not just the mafia, all Italian-Americans. And he was respected because he did a lot of philanthropy. In other words, he 
donated to charity. He did work for charity. He just, he would help families within the community. He wasn't just mafia. If you were a single mom and struggling to put a roof over your head, you went to Joe Aiello and he would help. Aiello was into bootlegging, gambling, prostitution, and he was well known for his willingness to use violence to achieve any goals that he had. He was also known for his ambition, and he was constantly expanding his criminal empire and consolidating his power. Despite his reputation for violence, he was known as a very charismatic and sweet man, and he was able to gain and maintain the loyalty of his followers through a combination of fear and compassion. Al Capone, on the other hand, was one of the most notorious gangsters of the entire Prohibition era. He was known for his brutal tactics and vast criminal enterprise. He wasn't really into philanthropy. He wasn't really into helping a single mom put a roof over her head. His criminal activities included bootlegging, prostitution, and gambling, so very similar endeavors to Aiello, and he was one of the wealthiest and most powerful men in the country during the 1920s. And that's not just the underworld, I'm talking the country. Unlike Joe Aiello, Capone was known for violence. He was known for his unpredictable behavior, and he used fear and intimidation to maintain control over his empire rather than compassion. He wasn't somebody that you felt comfortable going to if you had a problem. He was somebody that you feared. Aiello and Capone had a fierce rivalry, and they were both vying for control over the criminal underworld in Chicago. The rivalry eventually escalated into a brutal gang war that lasted several years and resulted in a lot of deaths. A lot of really, really important people in the criminal underworld died because of this war. Masseria was a huge connection for Capone. He helped move a lot of the illegal liquor that Capone had access to, and that was pretty crucial in his bootlegging activity. In return, Capone would provide all the protection in the world for any criminal interests that Masseria had in Chicago. Capone had Frankie Yale, a prior mentor to him, killed to keep Masseria in control of the New York underworld and help him gain control over D'Aquila. And Masseria had approached Malazzo and asked Malazzo to put his backing behind Capone and okay the contract on Aiello's head. Malazzo and Aiello, very, very close. They're both from Sicily. They're super, super close. So when Masseria wanted Capone to have power, he went to Malazzo and he was like, yo, I'm gonna get rid of Aiello. I would rather you do it. And if you do, I'll make you a rich man. You know, like I, I won't ever go near you. I won't touch you. We'll have a new business relationship and I'll, I will make you powerful beyond your wildest dreams. When Malazzo refused, Masseria had Malazzo killed. He also had Aiello killed to further Capone's bid for power. Masseria didn't only have Malazzo killed because of Capone, though. Aiello and Malazzo were pretty public in their support of Maranzano and the entire Castellamarisi faction of the Castellamarisi War. Obviously, that doesn't go over well with Masseria, who is on the other side of that war. Giuseppe Morello, the one that kind of started all of this, 
was known to be a seasoned assassin. He had appointed Masseria as the war chief of the Castello Marisi War, and he allowed Masseria to lead the entire family, and he instead served as the consigliere. Regardless of his power, he was one of the first victims of the Castello Marisi War. Morello was killed on August 15, 1930, while collecting cash receipts in his East Harlem office, while he was with Joseph Perino. That's the one whose brother, Sam Perino, was killed with Malazzo. So Joseph and Sam Perino, both gone. Morello's killer was identified as a Castello Marisi gunman known as the Buster from Chicago by Joseph Valachi. And we all know who Joseph Valachi is. He is the first made man in the American Mafia to ever turn state's witness. He is also the first person to ever acknowledge the existence of the commission in open court, and he gave the Mafia families of New York the names that they're known now as, the Bonanno family, the Lucchese family, the Gambino family. He gave them those names because when he testified, those are the people that were leading the families at the time that he testified. But obviously that's way later, after the formation of the commission. The Casella Marisi War, it's having a huge impact on all business of the Mafia. Because business is impossible to do while you're at war, you're hitting the mattresses, everybody's shooting at each other, nobody feels safe to go out and do business or have relationships with each other, everybody's scared, and because business has a tendency to progress and do very well in times of peace, the heads of the Mafia would call a meeting of representatives in Boston in December of 1930. At this meeting, they stripped Masseria of the title of Boss of Bosses, and they temporarily gave the title to Gaspar Messina. Gaspar Messina, the original leader of what would later come to be known as the Patriarca family, was based in Boston. So him being named the Capu di Tutti Capi, it probably stung Masseria's ego. Don't get me wrong, it probably hurt. But it didn't really have an effect on his day-to-day business or his day-to-day life, as the person that was given the title didn't live or rule anywhere near him. There was multiple attempts to make peace between Masseria and Maranzano to end the Castello Marisi War and bring things back to normal. Everybody tried. Everybody tried everything. There was nothing that was working. They had endless meetings and messages and everything that they could think of, they did. It became very, very clear that the war was only going to end when one of the two men died. While the Castello Marisi War is going on in full effect, Lucky Luciano set up a secret meeting with Maranzano. This is, like, super scandalous, because Luciano belongs to Masseria. He is Masseria's top guy. He's the second in command. He's the face of this family. So the fact that he's meeting with Maranzano, very bad. Very bad for Masseria. During the secret meeting, the two men struck a deal that Lucky Luciano would agree to engineer the hit of his boss, Masseria, in exchange for receiving Masseria's rackets and becoming Maranzano's second-in-command, and also immediately putting an end to the war. He also wanted a hand in choosing the bosses of each of the five families that Maranzano had planned to implement once he took control as the Capu di Tutti Capi. Masseria heard about Luciano's betrayal. He caught wind that Luciano had had a meeting with Maranzano, and it hurt him so much that he approached Joe Adonis about killing Lucky Luciano. 
Adonis, on the other hand, turned around and warned Luciano to be careful. Like, he was like, dude, you just had a contract put on your head. I'm just letting you know, watch your back. See, on the surface, the Castello Marisi War was fought between Masseria and Maranzano. But underneath the surface, there was another war going on. There was a war between the Young Turks and the Mustache Peets. The Mustache Peets had no idea that the Young Turks even existed. But all of the younger mafia members that believed in a more progressive mafia with less stifling rules banded together. It didn't matter which side of the war they were on. It didn't matter where in Italy they were born or where they moved to, where they were from, nothing. Everybody with these ideals banded together to try to take the mafia in the direction of being able to work with people that weren't only Italian. Being able to just kind of get rid of those old world views. They didn't want the rules that had existed since the 1400s in Italy. The world was changing and they wanted to change with it. The Mustache Peets, though, they have no idea that this war is going on. They have no idea that the Young Turks even exists. So Masseria didn't know better than to ask Adonis to kill Luciano. On April 15th, 1931, Luciano had plans to meet up with Masseria. He invited Masseria to lunch and pretty much said, like, listen, I know I was wrong. I'm ready to stand behind you. Masseria's not stupid. He has to know that Luciano met up with Maranzano. He is in a great deal of danger. But honestly, Luciano is his face in this war. He knew if he lost Luciano, he would lose the support of most of the soldiers in his family. Luciano was the one on the ground running shit. He was the one that everybody respected. Masseria didn't go and hang out with the rest of the guys at a restaurant. He didn't hit the mattresses with them. He separated himself to keep himself safe. So as much as he knew he was in danger at this meeting, he took a chance and met up with Luciano in a last-ditch effort to save his family in this war. They agreed to meet at Nuova Villa Tamaro, a restaurant that was located at 2715 West 15th Street in Coney Island. Masseria arrived to the restaurant in his car, which was steel-armored and had plate-glass windows that were an inch thick. So he was a little, a little nervous. It's safe to say, dude was a little scared and he was prepared. The attack was planned so perfectly that Masseria wouldn't even get suspicious that anything was coming. They spent a while eating and laughing together. They played pinochle and everything seemed like it was fine. While they were playing cards, Luciano excused himself and went into the bathroom. And when he did that, Albert Anastasia, Vito Genovese, Joe Adonis, and Benjamin Bugsy Siegel entered the dining room and shot Masseria and his two men to death. Masseria died after being shot four times in the back and once in the back of his head. When the four men fled, they left behind everything. A stolen car, the guns that they had used to kill Masseria, hats, and overcoats. Obviously, you can see that there's no such thing as DNA evidence at this time. Photos of the crime scene were captured with Masseria still holding an ace of spades in his hand. But it's pretty clear that it was planted there. He was holding it in a way that, like, nobody holds cards. It doesn't make sense. It was in between his middle and ring finger standing straight up. So somebody clearly put that there as like a sign. 
a calling card, if you will. You see what I did there? Because it's a card. It's a calling card. You get it? I get it. This is funny. Oh, funny. Nicola Gentile actually wrote a memoir later on. And in it, he wrote that he and Paul Rica had arrived to the restaurant shortly after the assassination had occurred. He said that when they got there, there was a lot of cops, so they turned around and headed straight for Luciano's apartment, where they received a message from Luciano that said, We have killed Masseria, not to serve him, but for our own personal reasons. Tell him that if he should touch even the hair of even a personal enemy of ours, we will wage war to the end. Tell him that within 24 hours, he must give us an affirmative answer for a meeting at a locality with which we pick out. In other words, saying like, I don't even give a shit if I hate someone. You're not allowed to touch them. Stay in your apartment. Don't kill anyone. Don't do anything. And if you do, we're coming for you. On April 15, 1931, Maranzano declared himself the Capo di Tutti Capi of the entire mafia after the death of Masseria. Luciano took charge of Masseria's gang and became Maranzano's lieutenant. Luciano took a big role in the success of the Castellamorisi War in Maranzano's favor. Masseria was not an easy man to eliminate. He had been underground to avoid any risk of getting caught by gunmen, and he was notorious for escaping any attack that was thrown at him. Masseria was buried at Calvary Cemetery in Queens, New York. I'm pretty sure that's the one that's on the side of the Jackie Robinson Parkway. I used to pass it every single day. It's a really nice cemetery, so... His funeral was, like most mafia bosses, way over the top. He had a $15,000 bronze casket, which would be worth $295,000 today. His services were held in his Manhattan penthouse apartment at 15 West 81st Street. Only weeks after his death, his daughter, Venetia, died. Nobody really knew how she died, and the press went crazy saying that she died of a broken heart. The Castellamorisi War ended with Masseria's assassination. Only a few months later, when Luciano decided that Maranzano was even worse than Masseria, Maranzano was assassinated as well, in September of 1931. And that was followed by a complete overhaul and reorganization of the American Mafia, with Luciano emerging as probably the most powerful Mafia member, but getting rid of the title of Capu di Tutti Capi, establishing five very clearly separated families, and a commission that was made up of the leaders of all the families so that any decision that had to be made would be made on a voting system rather than with one person. The Capu di Tutti Capi position was eliminated because obviously you can see that there's always going to be a deadly fight for the spot, and nobody's going to win. Like, okay, you win the fight, and now you're Capu di Tutti Capi, but now everybody wants to come for you, and everybody wants you dead so that they can have the position. It just doesn't make sense. Not long after Masseria's death, the police brought Luciano into the office to question him about Masseria's death. The police believed that Masseria's death could not just be coincidental without Luciano's involvement. But... There was absolutely no evidence to back up their ideas, and nobody ended up getting convicted of his murder. By that time, the police had started to believe that one of the shooters in Masseria's murder was a gangster that went by the name John Silk Stockings Giustra. Based on information that they had gotten from a confidential informant, 
It was determined that one of the coats that had been left behind at the restaurant belonged to Giustra. Luciano started poking around because he's like, what is making the cops think that they have enough right to bring me in? Like, they can't just bring me in for questioning and tell me that they believe that I'm the one that killed him. Something has to be tipping them off. Something has to be leading the cops to me. There has to be some kind of material evidence. And it didn't take long for him to figure out that the material evidence leading the cops to him was Giustra's coat. After Giustra was murdered on July 9th, 1931, the case against him for Masseria was dismissed since they had absolutely no evidence. Nobody was ever convicted of Masseria's murder, and to this day, there's just theories. Nobody really knows. I would love to see the cops go back, like now, today, and do a DNA test on all of the material that was there. Like, imagine seeing, in 2023, them going back and looking at the DNA evidence and knowing for sure who it was that committed all these crazy crimes. Like, I would love to know. So, that's all I have on Giuseppe Joe the Boss Masseria. What do you think about his story? Do you think he was one of the last true gangsters? Or do you think that his activity in the Black Hand made him evil and he got what he deserved? Let me know in the comments below. Thanks for watching. Join me next week as I delve into the lives and legacies of some of the most fascinating and infamous gangsters in history. Please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, follow, comment, do all the things, and I'll see you next week. Bye!